Good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are in the building with us and those who are joining online as well. We welcome you. We have one more week here this last Sunday in October to share in our monthly memory verse. This month is right from the book that we've been studying, Philippians. We can say it one more time together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Very good. I've been challenged and encouraged uh, in our time together in this letter to the Philippians that Paul was writing. And this morning, I wonder, uh, as we look to true value, what does true value really look like? When I was a young boy growing up, one of the things that my father and I used to do is we used to get together and go to card shows. Anybody remember card shows? We collected baseball cards. Back then, baseball was the thing. Some of you may be watching the Phillies right now, and you know what I'm talking about. We would go to the card shows, and we would collect cards. And I remember getting packs of baseball cards or football cards or basketball cards, and I couldn't wait to get home to open them up and see who was going to be in the pack that I got. I was hoping, always hoping to find a Cecil Fielder card. He was my favorite. Some of you remember, he played for a lot of different teams, but I loved Cecil Fielder. And I was always hoping if it was a baseball card, I was going to find one of his cards. If it was a football card, I was always hoping I was going to find Barry Sanders. Those were my favorite players growing up. They're the cards I wanted to find. And I remember my dad would buy this magazine that would go along with some of the packs. It was called Beckett's. I don't know if anybody remembers Beckett magazines. But inside the Beckett magazine, it would tell you the value of the card. So I'd get all excited. I'd find my Cecil Fielder card and my Barry Sanders card. I'd run over to my Beckett magazine. I'd rip it open and I'd look. One penny. I was a penny richer. <laughs> Maybe that's happened to you before. Maybe with uh, a piece of jewelry that you found. Maybe you used to watch, there used to be the show on PBS. I think it was called Antique Roadshow, if I'm not mistaken. Some of you might remember that. And, and from time to time, for whatever reason, we'd have it on in the house, I remember. And I, I remember the most difficult conversations were always with the people who thought they had something really, really valuable. Remember, if you saw it, like they'd be standing next to this piece of pottery or this item and the surveyor would walk over and they'd say, oh, this has been in my family for 300 years, dating back to the time I was in Wales and then Scotland did this and that and they found it here and, and they're all super proud of it. And the surveyor looks at it and says, nope, that's fake. Uh, you know, and, and, and they have to have that difficult conversation and, and then they realize this thing they've been holding on to for all their years that they thought was so valuable and so worth all of this money was really imitation, fake, nothing, sometimes even worthless. And I wonder this morning, what does real value look like? And how do we know when we have found something that's truly valuable. 
It's very interesting what Paul is doing in his letter here. He has given us, at the beginning of chapter 2, this wonderful example of Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 2, he has shown us uh, two shining stars that are following in the example of Christ. In Timothy and Epaphroditus, he's setting them up as modern examples of what it looks like to live as broken and poured out in the Christian community. And now, as we open chapter 3 today, Paul is moving on to reveal a few difficult examples. It wasn't just the good examples. There were many good examples. Paul was one of them. But there were difficult examples that were existing in the Christian community as well. Examples of lifestyles and attitudes and behaviors that are actually in opposition to the mind and the attitude of Christ. We're in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 today and as we open our text there are four questions that we want to look at for further exploration. First is what is a primary indication that the Christian community has prioritized the exaltation of Jesus? How do we know that we're doing that? Second, what threatens to disparage or erode joy within Christian communities? Have you ever felt like your joy is being eroded or disparaged by the things that are going on in your faith community, in your church? What's going on that's eroding that joy? Third, how can we receive the greatest right or privilege that we could ever be given? There is a right and a privilege that is above all others. How can we receive it? And then finally, why is Jesus to be embraced as the most valuable treasure we could ever possess. Paul's going to explore and look at these four questions in his text this morning. So before we turn to read verses 1 to 11, why don't we bow our heads and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its nature of being living and powerful and active. Thank you that your spirit uses it and is even working right now. Lord, we see this as a corporate activity. We come to your text humbly. We come to your text hungry. Lord, we need your word to nourish us, to fill us, to help us know how to live, uh, how to move, and how to be in this world that you've placed us in. There are a lot of difficult things out there, Lord, and we want to navigate them in a way that brings you glory and brings you honor. And as we turn to our text today, we look at some difficult examples that were existing within the church, and we want to turn away from those examples. And we want to turn away from those attitudes and behaviors. We want to, we want to repent of those things, Lord, and turn to you uh, and find your way to be the way that's most motivating uh, and most exciting to us as we live in this world. So, Lord, from your text today, I pray that you would show us that, that we would learn that, and we would leave here uh, more and more wanting to honor and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's Philippians 3. Uh, verses 1 to 11. This is Paul writing. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are of the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I might know him. And the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's call for joy here adds to this prominent mood of his letter to the church in Philippi. As a subtitle, uh, our series reminds us that there is in this world a lighthouse of joy available as we navigate through our oceans of grief, both corporately and individually. For Paul, his personal current grief was his Roman trial and house arrest, the outcome of which was ultimately most likely going to lead to his death. And for some of us today, we're facing the loss of a loved one. We're facing a difficult medical diagnosis. There's anxiety in our lives related to our place of employment. There's family relationships that are causing us stress or pain, or perhaps there's just general dissatisfaction or discomfort with our current place and situation in life. For the Christian community in Philippi, their grief was tuned towards the great uncertainty of their future existence and the continuing growth and establishment of the church. If, if Paul is in prison and he's under house arrest and they keep taking our leaders and putting, us, putting them in prison, how is this going to go on? How is this going to thrive? And in Philippians, Paul is calling us to look through and above the difficult circumstances in our lives, to our joy in the Lord. He says in verse 1, Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And the unity that Paul has encouraged can only be realized if the community commits to centering Christ, His person, His life, His example. That's what Paul does in chapter 2. He centers Christ. When the collective eyes of the church are fixed on Jesus, we are unified in person and in purpose. And the Spirit produces joy in abundance within our communities. Joy. And with unity and joy, they stand as evidence of Christian maturity and a vibrant, life-giving Christian community. Paul's moving the mouse to a new window and he's clicking on a link where he is revealing that within the church there are people who are robbing the community of its joy. They're disrupting and disturbing the unity of the church. In verse 2 he's going to use descriptors 
These are three descriptors that are related to one group of people that existed within the church. The group of people were known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers would derogatorily refer to Gentiles as dogs. So they would call them. We saw this in the Gospels, but it would continue at the early establishment of the church. The Judaizers would creep in. They would refer to Gentile believers as dogs. And Paul is taking the Judaizers' own words for the Gentiles, and he's turning it back on them and using it on them in verse 2. Look at what he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These evildoers, these dogs, they would teach that unless a person was circumcised according to the customs of Moses, that they could not truly be saved. You see evidence of such teaching on your screen from the book of Acts. This came right from the Judaizers and their beliefs. And Paul is pushing back on these joy-sucking Judaizers. He's delivering his most condemning indictment when he refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. If you want to read more about this group and their teachings, uh, a good place to go, you can write in your notes, is the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul is going to actually take on this heresy that was existing within the church. And so in verse 3, what Paul does is he begins to offer a better description, a better way. And I love what he does in verse 3. He uses the word we, and it's a call to solidarity within the Christian community. Look at verse 3. What does he say? It's not the Judaizers who are the circumcision, for we. He's talking about the Christian community, the people in Philippi, the church. We are the circumcision. He's not talking about physical circumcision in verse 3. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart. Friends, throughout this letter, joy and unity mingle together. Joy is the tune. Unity is the thread. Jesus is the theme of the letter. And for those who are truly circumcised of the heart, according to verse 3, we worship by the Spirit of God, meaning that our worship is Spirit-led, truly Spirit-led. That was being called into question by the Judaizers. How can people who aren't truly physically circumcised be saved and worship by the Spirit? Paul says, we who are of the circumcision of the heart our worship is truly spirit-led. He goes on to say, we exalt Jesus, meaning that he is the person we gather around and the example that we live according to. And we do not put our confidence in our human credentials or in the flesh for our salvation. This is what the Judaizers were doing. They were looking at the act of circumcision, something that physically somebody else could do for you. Or if you were old enough and you came to faith, that you could go have done yourself. And this act would indeed be an indicator that you were truly saved. They were trusting in all the wrong things. Human action, human credentials. 
And when a Christian community gathers as broken and poured out around the abundant well, our source and our person, who is Jesus, and when we center his person and his life as our preeminent example, God will be faithful to produce the fruits that he has promised. The primary fruit of which is joy. Friends, if, if we want to know whether or not we're truly exalting Christ as a Christian faith community here at CNBC, if we want one indicator that could point to our own gatherings and could communicate to the world that here at CNBC we are exalting in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then one of the number one characteristics that Paul suggests should be present in the community is joy. Joy. Do we have joy? It's not a maybe it's going to be present. It's not a could, could be present. This is Paul saying this is an essential component of a community exalting Christ. Joy. And the Spirit produces this as we prioritize and magnify Jesus in our corporate and private spaces. And friends, Let's, let's not make any mistake about it. This kind of community is powerfully countercultural because it's turned away from the power and the privilege and the position dynamics of this world. And instead, it's oriented and founded on the dynamics of the kingdom of God. Existing within communities, Christian communities where there's joy are also the postures of humility the postures of vulnerability, of sacrificial love, of patience, kindness, and gentleness, among others. Instead of magnifying ourselves, we glory in or exalt Jesus, giving our greatest priority to elevating his name, his life, his ways, his attitudes, and his work. And friends, this this keeps us from this unhealthy and unsatisfactory reliance on our own credentials. It can't be relying on our own credentials. Instead, what it does is it, it allows for us to regularly, regularly rehearse the more hopeful truth that we are saved on the credentials of Christ alone. Amen? It's only his credentials that can save us. Not our own. Paul's going to wander into this a little bit. Interesting in our text. He's pausing for a moment in his line of reasoning. And he's, he's going to take a moment in verses 4 to 6 to reflect on his own power and his own privilege and his own position and the credentials that he had. If there was anyone who had cause to boast in the world of Judaism for the sake of the Judaizers, it was Paul. It was Paul. Paul gives us the perfect number. He gives us seven reasons why he could have put confidence in his own credentials. And it's interesting, as we look at this list, the first four reasons Paul did not choose Rather, he inherited 
as one who was privileged from birth. The last three he took up on his own convictions and ways of working out his prior beliefs. Take a look at the text starting in verse 4. See if you can find all seven. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. It's interesting. As the custom of Paul's inherited faith tradition, he was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with what's written in Torah, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. A male child born into a Jewish family was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was. He was a good son of Israel, of pure descent. He was not a Gentile. He even knew the tribe he had came from. He was a Benjamite. The only of Jacob's sons who were born in the promised land. The warrior tribe of Israel. The tribe of Israel's first king, the tribe on whose land the temple rested, the tribe that stood with Judah in loyalty to the king when the nation was divided. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, brought up by his parents in observance with the customs and traditions of the Jewish faith. He would have known his own people's language rather than the commercial language of the day with which many of his people spoke instead of their own language. He would have studied and known the Torah front and back. We, we memorize a monthly scripture reference, one or two verses. He most likely would have had the majority of the Torah memorized. Could you imagine memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Anybody want to try? I don't think I could. I don't think I could spend my entire life and probably not have anywhere near half of Genesis memorized. He most likely would have had all five books in his head, in the language in which they were written. In every way we could possibly imagine, Paul's privilege and position as a Jew gave him cause to boast when in the presence of the Jewish community. And as Paul grew up under the law and convictions of Judaism, he determined that he would follow in his father's and maybe even his grandfather's footsteps and join the party that was considered to be the most orthodox and conservative party of his time, Paul became a Pharisee. Acts 23, verse 6, he talks about this. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. What's Paul doing here in these verses? Ultimately, he is showing us how boasting in ourselves actually works against Christian community. How boasting in ourselves and in our own flesh and our own credentials erodes and discourages joy as we take our focus off the exaltation and magnification of Jesus and begin focusing on ourselves. And our own self-imposed or others-imposed 
worthiness or righteousness. Church, boasting in our human efforts, our flesh, our credentials, they will always lead to an erosion of joy within the Christian community because we're disparaging one another in our efforts to elevate ourselves. And this happens. I mean, this really does. We feel like we have to justify ourselves or our positions and, and give our credentials as we share things with one another. Paul's saying, we don't have to do this. We can live broken and poured out just as Jesus did, sharing in his mind, sharing in his attitude. The mind and the attitude of Christ is best exemplified and practiced in the Christian community when we consider all that the world counts as gain, as loss, for the sake of gaining Christ. This is what Paul did. Take a look at verse 7. It very clearly says it. But these, these things, these assets, I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. According to Judaism, at one time, Paul had it all. Everything there was to attain to, the security of his position as a Pharisee, the power of his privilege, and the wealth that came by his status, he had it all. And yet... As he has been transformed by the power of the gospel at work within him, he had come to realize that there was a far greater title that could be given in Christ Jesus. A far greater title. Friends, it's a title that's available and applied to those who believe still today. I hope all of you watching online or in this auditorium share in this title. It's the greatest title we could ever possess. It's the greatest privilege we could ever be given. Through Jesus, we are children, sons and daughters of God. Amen? That is a great title. A child of the living God. And this title, it completely reoriented Paul's priorities. Once he was a man who persecuted the church, now he was laying down his life for the sake of Christ and the building up and establishing and equipping of his church. Jesus had taken everything that was once counted to Paul's credit and turned it on its head. Friends, the greatest right that we could ever be conferred or could ever be conferred to us is given by God. It's communicated in John chapter John chapter one. It's something this Thanksgiving season I've been thinking about the things that I'm thankful for, and this is number one on my list. This, for whatever reason, the Lord brought this to mind as I was working down through a list uh, the other day, and this is number one. To all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has been given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents, nor human desire, nor a husband's decision, but by God. Church, the most significant privilege we could ever receive, it's not inherited. 
It's not earned by our own efforts. It's bestowed on us by God and comes solely through belief in Jesus. Now, I've found in my own personal life that when I grab hold of this title, child of God, and I place it before every other title, position, or privilege that's in my life, I can be fully satisfied as one who is known by God, the God who is my heavenly father. As God's child, he loves us and he graciously pours his compassion out on us. As children of God, we are given the wonderful gift, not just of eternal life, but of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He is always with us. A child who can walk through difficulty, who can walk through loss and trial and discomfort in this life with the insurance that even though it is hard, God can use it and is working it all together for our good. We are children who can rest on the promise that even though we might fail in the processing and handling of our day-to-day adversities, even though our flesh may give way to sin, that our Father has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Friends, in this life, church, in this life, it's my earnest desire that you would be intrigued, more than intrigued, motivated, captivated, By the example of Jesus and the gift that he extends to all who believe to be given the right to be called a son or daughter of God. Don't leave this auditorium or turn off your computer today and stop watching if you do not have that title as part of your identity. Son or daughter of God. That could be your identity today. Today could be the day that you came into Calvary Monument Bible Church. You weren't quite sure what was going to happen. You knew we were studying the book of Philippians. You have all kinds of difficult stuff going on in your life. Things are cloudy and hard. Maybe you felt purposeless. Maybe you just felt like life itself was not worth it anymore. Today could be the day that you come to faith in God through Jesus. And you are given the greatest title that you could ever know as a son of or daughter of God. That, that's something that I, it will take my entire life to unpack the meaning of that. That my father is eternal. The depths of his love I can never see the ends of. The more I find out and learn about him, the more I find out there's even more to find out and learn about him. He is so completely unfathomable. And there is no father in this world who can compare in glory and riches than our father who is in heaven. I would ask you today, come to faith in that God through Jesus and find that title, child of God, to be the most satisfying and sustaining title that you ever have in your life. You see... Through being known as a child of God, Paul came to find that he could let go of or relinquish his grip on the priorities of the world that he once held dear. And instead of holding on to those priorities, now he could embrace Jesus. See, it was in Christ that Paul had discovered the most significant and treasured possession that he could ever have imagined. Look at how he communicates, starting in verse 8. Indeed, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, immeasurable, incomparable worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. The actual word means dung. We're in a farming community. We know what that means. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love verse 8. I mean, somebody, somebody said to me, what does it look like? What does repentance and confession really look like? And, and, and really, as believers, do we still need to confess and repent? And I said, yes, I have to do it just about every day. And verse 8, Paul gives us a model of exactly how to do it. It's beautiful to confess and repent and turn away from our former ways and the former priorities of this world. But now in verse 9, this example of instead of those ways, take hold of Christ. Embrace Him and His ways. Paul is, in the previous verses, he's laying the atrocities of his former life. And all of the rights that it carried. And he's putting them up against the example of Christ. And he's found himself to be a man in desperate need. I mean, think about this. This is, this is pretty incredible. Go back to chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Just refresh your brains for a second with me. We could lay the spectrum of Paul's previous lifestyle over and against the mind and attitude of Christ. Now watch this. Christ had laid down his rights, not regarding equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Prior to his experience with Jesus, Paul had taken pride in his right as a son of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Christ's way was better. Back in Philippians 2, it was Jesus who emptied himself and took on the form of a slave by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. Paul, prior to his Damascus Road experience, with great zeal set himself apart from others as one who was a proud Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees, they all they had looked apart. Rest it up, look good, pray in public, all those things. Christ's way was better. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before Christ, Paul was dutifully persecuting the church and having Christians executed. Christ's way was better. Amen? It was Jesus who was the only one who was able to truly live a blameless and righteous life, completely satisfying the law and all of its demands. Paul, in all of his efforts and human strivings and trying, he could not do it. Christ's way was better. You see, friends, Paul's problem prior to Christ is the same problem that we all face prior to Christ. He had a terrible issue with sin, and death hovered as sin's ultimate consequence. The law had forsaken him. 
Paul's problem was his faithlessness. And because he was without faith, he was also unrighteous and separated from God. And faithlessness, church, is a problem that's plagued humanity from our very origins. You go back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created all things as good. Man and woman as the crowning adornment of his creative work. He then tells his children in the garden, be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue the earth. All of this has been given to you, but for one thing. There's a tree. Just don't take anything off that tree. All Adam and Eve needed to do in the garden was put their faith in God. To trust that he was who he said he was. That he was good, that he had indeed created everything for their good and for his glory. They only needed to believe that it was God who could sustain them and provide them with everything needed to live and flourish in the world he had placed them in. They didn't need to rely on their own efforts. They didn't need to rely on their own strength. Even the work of their own hands prior to the curse was a source of joy. They got to participate in the flourishing of this beautiful creation that God had planted them in the midst of. And instead of trusting God, it was their faithlessness that led them to rely on their own efforts, their own strength, their own intuition. And when tempted by the serpent, they doubted. Their doubt gave way to sin. And they took and they grabbed. And in that moment, they believed in the efficacy of their own way over God's way. And that is faithlessness. And through their act of faithlessness, sin and death came into the world and brought with it destruction and devastation and division and hostility and all of the difficulty that we deal with today. But, I love buts in the Bible. It's a true story about God's plan to redeem and restore and bring humanity back into a right relationship with himself. Man, in Ephesians, Paul uses them. In other places of the Bible, they're used. Because it doesn't end with death. Amen? There's life. The beauty of God's word is that it presses its reader towards this greater image. There's a better way, a new kind of humanity. There's a person who would be sent to seek and save the lost. Jesus' faithfulness was holy and perfectly complete. And he wholly and perfectly completed the work that God had given him to do. And it paved the way for those who would believe on and in Jesus to be declared righteous by him, therefore being made right with God. When we are faithless, Jesus is faithful. He is always faithful. And his faithfulness will always overcome the faithlessness of his children who struggle and strive with their own efforts. Why do we do this? Why? I fight and I struggle and I, and I strive. And, and I was just walking with my wife last night and I'm, I, 
I wrestle with anxiety and stress. And many of you do too. And there's fear. And there's bitterness. And there's doubt. And, and there's something within us that for some reason, just like Paul, makes us think that we have to accomplish something. We have to live up to some standard in order to be right with God. When the standard is Jesus and we can't do it, he has to do it for us. And this is what he said. Jesus' words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. And learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my load is not hard to carry. Man, I need that every single day. I need it. Maybe some of you do too. I need it. On that Damascus road, Paul finally saw that his own righteousness and his worthless striving according to the law was nothing compared to the righteousness of Christ. Nothing. He saw that righteousness according to the law or human standards or traditions, it had betrayed him, leaving him faithless. How could a man who had dedicated his whole life to serving God find out that everything he was doing was fraudulent? Only through Jesus. And when Paul put his trust in the Messiah as evidenced in his repenting and turning from his former ways, he found new life and his life was totally transformed, totally and now he could look at the patterns and attitudes and behaviors of his life and see how they were becoming more and more aligned with the attitudes and the mind of Christ. This is beautiful. So you saw the former ways of Philippians chapter 2. I want you to hear what renowned biblical scholar Gordon Fee did. And Gordon Fee, I think he passed away this, just this recent week. He passed on to glory. But he was reflecting on a similar text and he brought this comparison. It's beautiful. He's examining Paul's spiritual led about face. Look at what he says. He says, quote, While Christ did not consider godlikeness to accrue to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, so Paul now, after Christ, considers his former gain as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. As Christ was found in human likeness, Paul is now desiring to be found in Christ. Finally, as Christ's humiliation was followed by God's glorious vindication of him, so present suffering for Christ's sake will be followed by glory in the form of resurrection. End quote. Isn't it amazing how Jesus trans? Forms our lives and our priorities. Finding himself being conformed into the image of Christ, Paul was a leader, a giant leader in the early church. 
Friends, if, if we are trusting in our own righteousness or faithfulness or we are trusting in the church or church traditions to save us and set us right with God, we've placed our faith in the wrong things. If we think that what we do is somehow contributing in some way to us being made right with God, being known by God, or the right we've been given to be called one of His children, we've put our faith in the wrong things. Being conformed to Christ in His life and in His death means that we've placed our trust in Him and we're relying wholly on His faithfulness and His righteousness for our eternal security and our future hope. And man, this gives Paul and the church uh, in Philippi and us uh, a new and dynamic aim for our lives. Look at verse 10. Verses 10 and 11, really. It's just Paul's glorious desire. The aim. My aim is to know him. To experience the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings. To be like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Friends, when Paul's talking about knowing Jesus here, he's not using the word for know that we typically uh, uh, incorporate with facts and intellectual knowledge. That's not the word for know that Paul is using here. He could have used that word, but he didn't choose to use that word for know. Rather, he's using the word for know that connotates a deeply intimate and personal relationship. Personal, relational, emotional experience significant, meaningful relationship. That's the word, know, that Paul uses here. To truly know Jesus, church, is to experience and have him living within us and to experience the resurrection power that was alive and working within him because any of us who are sons and daughters of God have been spiritually resurrected, brought from death to life. There's a power at work within us. There is a union and an intimacy with Jesus that Paul is talking about here and communicating that remains largely underdeveloped in Christian faith communities. I really believe we could do a better job talking about union, union with Christ, participation in Christ, what it means to be in Christ. There's some depth there that we just haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. Paul is going to share in his sufferings. We too should share in his sufferings. And what does it mean to be like Jesus in his death? What does that mean? And to understand this, I think we have to grab hold of what compelled Christ to go to the cross in the first place. And we know when we look at the life of Christ, what compelled him to the cross was the glory of the Father and his love for sinners. That is why he laid down his life. He lived and he died according to his own ideal of the greatest love that could ever been shown. Jesus said this himself. These are his words. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is Jesus, the friend of sinners. Laid down his life, died on the cross, that the world might know, see, hear, and ultimately find life in him. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus and you're saying, I couldn't possibly be in a relationship with God. My life is too messed up and I'm too sinful. 
Let go of your boast. Let go of your pride. Jesus saves sinners. I am one of them. He can save you today. For both the individual and the Christian community, knowing Jesus is something that should literally consume our entire lives here on earth. As Christ within us calls us to follow and be formed in his ways according to his attitude and his mind. And so Paul's final statement in verse 11, it demonstrates humility, not doubt, regarding his future resurrection. It is spoken, attached to verse 10, as a way of showing us that he has not yet attained to his future hope. And friends, neither have we. And next week, Paul will further explore this aim and we'll continue uh, wrapping up chapter 3 next week. But for today, I'm wondering as we close and the team comes to lead us in a final song, do we have joy in our personal lives In our corporate life, does joy mark the atmosphere of our gatherings? Can we be defined and described? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, describe and define this person for me. And the person was you. Would joy be a top five in that list? I don't know if it would be for me. I could do a lot better. Perhaps many of us could too. But friends, when we have this joy, when we're fixed on Christ, we should be unified in him as the person and the source of our life and our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of the transformation that Paul went through in his life. Indeed, he was one that by human standards could have been counted worthy in every way almost imaginable. And yet, before he knew your son, all of that was meaningless. Lord, it's hard to live in this world. We are challenged at every intersection to elevate ourselves, to build our platform, to gain prestige, to make our own name big. It's the world of social media. And Lord, we need your son Jesus to inhabit us. We need to be compelled by him in a way that his example captivates us. Lord, we just want to live according to his mind and his attitudes. We need your help. We need your help to produce that joy within us when the world we live in tries to pull us down and steal and rob us of our joy. Help us keep our eyes on Christ to remain focused on him. Lord, when elevating our own selves and our own desires to be right threatens to cause disruption and disparage unity in the Christian community, help us lay down our lives, look to Jesus, and see him as the ultimate true source of our unity. Father, more than anything else, Might all of us who are gathered here today know that title as your son or your daughter. And might that be the title that we are most secure in and most proud of as we live our days out on this earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.